You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Walter Brueggemann did not only teach me to read the Bible, he taught me to read. In the 22 years since I first read A Theology of the Old Testament, I've been bringing the questions that book poses to biblical texts over to every literary text I've come across. In what ways am I reading primary testimony or counter-testimony as I take on Toni Morrison or John Milton or Sophocles? How are these texts relating to and creating audiences when I teach Shakespeare or Plato or James Baldwin? And where do my own readings fit into stories of interpretive and disciplinary conversations whenever I engage with any text? These questions are still rolling and still doing their work in Brueggemann's recent collection of essays, Resisting Denial, Refusing Despair, and Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled to welcome him back to the show. Walter, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Nathan. I'm so glad to get to be with you. Since this is a collection of essays, I want to start in the middle of things with your ninth chapter, The Bugaboo of Socialism. We can talk about economics as we go along, but I want to start out with an early claim in that chapter, namely that, quote, sloganeering is designed to stop critical thinking, end quote. Because so many of our listeners have heard me talk about your books, and I imagine a bunch of them have read your books as well, I want you to relate that to a book that I and many of our listeners likely have read, The Prophetic Imagination in which you teach us to think of prophets not as problem solvers or engineers, but rather as poets. So how does the grieving and hoping poetry of the prophet differ from sloganeering? Well, obviously, um, uh, grieving and hoping can uh, sink into sloganeering, but it will not become sloganeering if it is specific and concrete and linked to people's actual experience. The problem with sloganeering is is that it floats away from lived human experience and constructs a phony world uh, that isn't connected to reality. So what I want to insist on uh, all through this is that it is the reality of human pain that keeps us honest and that requires our language Uh, to reflect what's going on with us. That's good. That's good. Now, I want to continue with with grief and hope because, you know, as I said, those two two interpretive strategies, I'm going to call them that, uh, started, you know, for me with prophetic imagination, and they continue in this collection as God's answers to denial and despair. So grief insists that the reality insists on, pardon me, the reality of what denial denies and hope insists on God's inexhaustible goodness when despair would be finished with God's story. But these are not mere beliefs, and I appreciate that you emphasize that in this collection. The faithful must perform them. So why is utterance so crucial to grief and hope, and how central or how peripheral are the historical worshiping communities called synagogue and church in those utterances? Well, I think that... that. Um human speech is constitutive of social reality. And the words we use and the language we use make available to us a certain world. So we have to learn to talk in ways that are honest and concrete and specific about our lived reality. And I think that the church and the synagogue have long running traditions of a script 
that we can uh, appeal to and utilize so that the laments of ancient Israel are the best script we've got for grieving. And obviously the prophetic promises are a script that we have for hoping. It's the kind of hope that Martin Luther King then mobilized in his I Have a Dream speech uh, in which he is in complete continuity with a prophetic promise. So I think that we have to study how those uh, biblical practices of speech are available to our own uh, construction of an alternative reality for us in our world. Very good. I'm going to keep jumping around in the collection and ask you about your examination of Jeremiah and the Jerusalem establishment in your chapter, Shameless Normality. Now, Jeremiah rails at the scribes because they've lost all sense of shame in their wickedness, and you draw that to our attention rightly. Uh, but in our moment, shame seems to have become a kind of Nietzschean power game, a, a double-edged blade, if you will. One side is always ready to you know, point to the other side, uh, you know, and say they should feel shame about this. And yet, you know, to shame someone uh, becomes almost a kind of act of verbal violence uh, when it's the other side doing to us. Does Jeremiah offer us help living in the midst of those rhetorical battles and with that double-edged blade? Or is he too busy waging those battles with that blade? Well, you can you can read Jeremiah either way. But I suspect that in our own uh, contemporary uh, situation, the work is not to shame other people. The work is to have enough of a, of a social awareness and a social consciousness uh, that we become aware about how our own practice and our own ideology uh, is uh, marked by some shame. And if we can uh, construct honest communal practices then we may hope that both we and those with whom we disagree uh, may arrive at enough honesty uh, to feel shame when we uh, commit acts and words that violate the human project. Uh, but that, that's, a very, um, that's very remote from a society uh, in which we just beat each other up with our slogans and that will never lead us to that kind of honesty. I want to follow up on that a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that people sometimes accuse biblical texts of doing, and especially the prophets, uh, and in fact, I think I might have read you accusing people of, of, of doing when they call themselves prophetic, is uh, they use prophetic as, a, as an excuse for being especially abrasive. Uh, you know, uh, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, as, as we combine the call uh, to speak this truth and to be concrete, like you said, with that self-examination that you just talked about, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess the tension that, you know, I've never managed to navigate very well myself is between a self-examination that, that tends to paralyze me when I want to speak the truth about a world that I inhabit, and then, you know, a sense that I need to tell the truth about the world at the expense of narrating my own place in its, uh, I mean, in its evil. I mean, you know, if, if, is it possible to do both of those at the same time, or is it something where you have to oscillate and do a different thing in a different moment? Well, I think it is, uh, I think you're right. I think it is tricky and complex. Uh, and uh, there's no easy way 
through that. But as you would know, my main insistence is that our work has to revolve around pain and not around guilt. So there's no mileage in uh, wanting to make other people feel guilty about what's going on. There is huge mileage in bringing real social pain to honest speech. And that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have to look backward to blame and guilt, but it can look forward to what actions may we now take that are serious uh, healing responses to the problem of social pain. Uh, so I think that uh, while, while we like to think that the, the uh, prophets were mainly sore heads, I think what they're, what they're basically doing is bringing pain to speech, and then they're asking what kinds of response may we make or does God make to the reality of pain that may lead to a new world or a new social construction. I want to add another ingredient to this stew, and that is political involvement, because this is one, um, again, I find extraordinarily tricky. And I want to back up to the chapter just before the Jeremiah one, uh, in which you deploy the parable of the brambles from Judges 9. Uh, I'll confess, I have probably read over this, but I have no memory of ever reading it before this. Uh, <laughs> but you use it to praise political involvement. So for our listeners who have become disillusioned with the two major parties because they seem so reliably to take on each other's worst habits. What's the word that judges might speak to us? Uh, speak to them, them, of course, not me. Well, the, the, the parable uh, is uh, uh, about the trees in the forest uh, electing a leader and, and all the good trees decline office. So finally the bramble comes forward and says, well, if nobody wants to be the leader, I'll be the leader. So you don't, want, you don't want the forest to be led by a thorn bush. So I think that uh, a political engagement uh, that is not, uh, not overly committed to ideology and party sloganeering, but that really wants to mobilize community power for the sake of doing good, I think is, is an important religious commitment uh, and uh, insofar as uh, thoughtful, responsible people abdicate that opportunity to be involved, uh, that's the, the leadership is going to be taken over by people who uh, have uh, more nefarious goals of their own. So I think that we have an obligation uh, to be involved in whatever ways we are able to uh, about the political process. And that allows for a great range of possibilities, uh, but it does mean uh, to be connected uh, socially, and that means a party or a group that, that can together exercise some influence that individual persons by themselves cannot do. And, and this is good because, I mean, one thing that this collection does well is it calls into question uh, a kind of, and I won't even say a kind of, I'll just go ahead and confess my own sins here, Walter, my own aversion to political parties. I, <laughs> I, I, I am just so tired of political parties. 
So, so I want to return to the bugaboo of socialism, first of all, because I like saying bugaboo on podcasts. It's a fun word. <laughs> um, and ask you for some more words on another of your sentences. And here's the sentence, quote, the work of the church is to unmask the misleading inadequacy, inadequacy of the slogans, end quote. Now, in my own going here and there in the world, I found that partisans of those two major American factions, they tend to convince themselves that the act of unmasking the other guys not only stands as duty, but also largely ends any possible dissent that might follow. So when the most ardent partisans are pointing across the metaphorical aisle at each other, and both sides are yelling Pharaoh at the other, how should those of us suspicious of party politics navigate all of this? I mean, th those of them, I mean, not me, of course. Well, I, I wish I knew the I wish I knew the answer to that. But I, I think the unmasking uh, needs to uh, be across the political spectrum. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, a good card carrying liberal, but it's easy enough to see how uh, liberals uh, also devolve into sloganeering that covers over reality and social responsibility. So my insistence all across the political spectrum is that we have to have to drive down to the specificity of human reality and human suffering. And what we discover is that none of our slogans, conservative or liberal, bear true witness to what's going on in people's lives. Uh, and, and I think uh, we're, we're doing this the morning after uh, Raphael Warnock won in uh, Florida. Uh, I think Senator Warnock's uh, rhetoric in that regard uh, is, is really quite spectacularly effective uh, in which he doesn't go very far toward slogans, but he talks really common sense about the sorts of things that people are facing. Uh, and I think he's an unusual character uh, in that regard, and we may hope that uh, there will be more like him uh, in time to come. Yes, yes. Uh, Reverend Warnock will remain my senator here in Georgia, and uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll confess that as an English professor, I'm glad that the one who can speak sentences won that one. But <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um. It is the day after uh, election day here in Georgia. It's also in the middle of Advent. So I want to hear from you on perhaps your most Advent flavored chapter. Uh, and that is squirming towards newness, chapter eight. Uh, you give a reading of Psalm 114 and you repeat its imperative to tremble at the, at the coming of God's new possibilities. If you're one of those people whose power and standing rely on the old systems of duplicity and violence. Now, Walter, I want our churches calling that out from the pulpits and drinking big gulps of it at our Eucharistic tables. But once again, my nervousness reemerges as I get older. How easy is it for two factions who feed on demonizing each other to co-opt that kind of oracle against the violent? And so really, I mean, here's my real question. How is it that I've gotten old and you haven't? <laughs> I've gotten very old. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think I think that what uh, white congregations have to do, and it looks to me like both you and I are white. Uh, so it would seem. Uh, what white congregations have to do in this regard is to help people face up to the 
unarguable fact that the world uh, in which we uh, prospered uh, by our white uh, privilege and supremacy, that that world is gone. And it's not coming back and not all the militia violence in the world is ever gonna restore that. So we, we have to talk sense about the fact that that's a real loss to very many people. Now, obviously the, the work in, a, in, a, in an African-American congregation is, it is a different kind of work, uh, which I assume is uh, a, a very glad welcome of what is emerging in front of us. So we have to suit our uh, religious rhetoric to the people that are in front of us. Uh, but, but I think for white conservatives and white liberals, uh, the new facts of our uh, sociocultural economic situation require very painful honesty. And I don't know anyone except the church that either has the opportunity or the script to help people engage uh, in honesty about this change uh, that is in front of us. I want to follow up on that because one of the church's core practices and one of them that uh, I think that we're always learning to do because we we forget so easily how to do it uh, is confession of sin. And it strikes me that, you know, I mean, what you're narrating right now uh, is a kind of confession that Americans are especially bad about, uh, which is the kind of confession that says not that I have wronged, but that we have wronged. Uh, I mean, you know, that strikes me as a very biblical kind of utterance to go back to the idea of utterance, uh, you know. I, I, people have written books about why Americans have such a tr such trouble saying that we have wronged. Uh, what kinds of practices does the church have to learn to confess that way? Well, we, the, the church has got to overcome its long-running individualism. Uh, we, we talk as though we come to Christ one at a time and, and all of that stuff. Uh, but in fact, uh, we are a we are a systemic network of people uh, who use our social power in concert. And therefore we have, when we come to confess our sin, uh, we have to speak with and on behalf of the network through which we act and through which we receive our life. But I'm inclined to think that for the long running practice of confession of sin, that we may be in a moment when we really need to be practicing a confession of loss. Uh, and that is that that world of, of uh, privilege and advantage uh, is gone. And, it, and it, it's a huge loss that needs to be grieved. You, you can connect that to sin and guilt, uh, but it seems to me the presenting issue is uh, it, it's a loss uh, that I regret and I want to I want to weep about it, and uh, if I can, if I can honestly grieve about it, uh, I won't have to spend so much energy trying to recover it. I think. I know I keep going back to the well of the bugaboo of socialism without actually talking about socialism, but I'm going to do it one one more time. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite chapters in this book, so that's why I keep coming back to it. But in a move that might surprise our listeners who don't read your book. 
and it'll be the ones who don't read it who email me with angry comments, I guarantee. You note that people can and do practice neighborly dispositions towards one another in capitalist and in socialist contexts, and people's greed destroys life in both socialist and capitalist moments. Now, if that's true, and I have a hunch that it is, what kinds of good does political involvement, which neither assures neighborliness nor eliminates greed, do in this world that we inhabit? Why do politics if you can't kill the greed? Well, you can regulate greed. So I, I think that uh, what, what we need uh, from the government are guardrails that, that uh, prevent our uh, most extreme damage that we might do in our fear or in our greed or in our hate uh, so that we are a body politic. We, we are not, uh, Margaret Thatcher is the only one who ever thought that we are living uh, simply as individuals in a market. We are in fact a society that has so much in common and socialism is about the common ownership of what we have in common. And uh, the church has to do a great deal of work to break out of its individualism uh, as, as though we are simply isolated uh, actors in the world when in fact we are located uh, from birth in networks of meaning and power that we can mobilize in very different kinds of ways. Now, Walter, you lived here in Georgia for a while. Certainly, you met, certainly you've met some libertarians. The, the Iron Lady was not the only one who thought we don't live in a uh, network of interconnected. <laughs> That's right. Well, you might have picked up on the tra trajectory of these questions. I am building towards your encomium for Jim Wallace uh, on his 50 year with Sojourners, which where you note that uh, Wallace is something of a, quote, healthy migrant, end quote. And you can explain that phrase if you like. In that he's neither a New York Times liberal, that's your phrase, nor a court evangelical Republican, that's John Fia's phrase, <laughs> but someone whose work, though not to be finished in his lifetime, brings health of the sorts that neither faction imagines very well. So talk about Jim Wallace for a moment. Well, I think uh, Jim Wallace is deeply rooted in evangelical faith, uh, and I think uh, he has connected his evangelical faith to the political economic realities that are all around us. And as you know, Nathan, now that he's retired from uh, Sojourners, he has an institute uh, at Georgetown University uh, in which he is uh, focusing on um, uh, public uh, questions of economics and politics. And he runs, a, I don't know what you call it, a blog or a, a, a regular uh, circular of his opinions week by week so people can find out about that and sign on for it and uh, benefit on a regular basis uh, from his teaching. I think he's very brave. I think he's very honest. Uh, and I think uh, he represents uh, the best of moving between these ideological extremes with uh, sanity and buoyancy. Uh, to the great benefit of the rest of us. 
Yeah, I remember back in the 1990s when I first became aware of Jim Wallace and and not coincidentally also when I first started reading your books, uh, that Sojourners had a slogan, and I'm probably going to misquote it here because I didn't write it in my notes, uh, but the slogan was, uh, we don't have any permanent allies, but we do have permanent issues. And I remember thinking that that is about where you should land in a city like Washington. Right. Yep, that's right. Uh, so, so that that leaves that leaves uh, a willingness to make provisional alliances uh, in which you don't have to agree on much. Ted Kennedy was a master at creating uh, provisional alliances, and I think uh, Senator Warnock uh, does the same thing, in which you can mobilize people together around a particular issue without having to agree on everything. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. Now, I want to talk about a cluster of four chapters in the back half of the collection that engage from different angles on the episode from First Kings involving Naboth, Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. And if you want to pronounce any of those names differently than I do, please feel free, because I feel like I pronounce them differently every time I read them. But I want our listeners to hear a few of those angles before they go out and get this book, which they will. One angle that you take on this story has to do with historical economics and between economic imaginations that treat land as gift and inheritance on one hand, and then economic systems that treat land as fungible property to be bought and sold on the other. So since we've already made a case for politics, why must the faithful talk about economics? Well, because uh, biblical faith is shot through with uh, economic agendas. Uh, It's important to remember that in the Exodus, uh, the biblical narrative began in a labor dispute between the Israelite slaves and Pharaoh. And uh, you can carry that all the way through to Jesus' parables, many of whom are, uh, many of which are about economics. So the church over the centuries has worked very hard uh, to screen out uh, economic issues, uh, but they are uh, pervasive as they are pervasive in our daily life. We, we are aware every day about economic realities in our own life, about income, about expenditure, about tax, uh, about debt, about interest, uh, about wages, about all those matters. Uh, and uh, to pretend uh, that our faith is not about that uh, is, is a big act of uh, self-delusion. That sounds about right. And your second chapter on Naboth's Vineyard involves Archbishop Oscar Romero. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about Romero recently because uh, Plow Publishing in New York sent an anthology of his writings to me and Danny Anderson for the Sectarian Review podcast. And listeners, you can go listen to that as you please. What Danny and I discovered in his writings is precisely what you point out in this chapter, which is chapter 14 for our listeners, once you get this collection, that Romero is not a Stalinist. uh, And in fact, he's not even a Marxist. But rather, his words against those who exploit the poor are pretty straightforwardly biblical commentary. Now I want you to talk about socialism. I've told you not to for three questions. Now we're going to talk (laughs) socialism. Uh, Is Romero's theology of land reform 
a kind of theological socialism or is it a different kind of phenomenon when it comes to Bible interpretation and preaching? Well, socialism is simply the argument uh, that the, the community must have ownership of the common goods and the common means of production on which we all rely. And it is, uh, it is an insistence uh, that the, the common sources of well-being cannot be privatized into private ownership because then they get skewed and you begin to get a gap between the haves and the have-nots. So I would assume uh, that Romero's land policy uh, is, is something about uh, socialism uh, because a land cannot be uh, siphoned off uh, into private ownership. So that's been an issue at least since the 18th century when England began to pass uh, what are called the laws of enclosure that kept needy peasants from uh, getting wood off of the estates of the wealthy people. Uh, before there were laws of enclosure, uh, poor needy peasants were free to take wood off the property of the big landowners. Uh, and uh, that was a, a modest form of socialism in which the big landowners were obligated to provide some material goods to those who didn't have economic resources. So now what has happened in the 21st century is that we have pushed the laws of enclosure to radical extremes in which we have attempted uh, to privatize everything. And of course, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were the high priests uh, of that kind of privatization. Let's throw Milton Friedman in there as well. That's for sure. They depended on the, the, uh, the teaching of Milton Friedman, for sure. So the church has a huge stake in combating that kind of uh, uh, privatization and individualism for the sake of the common good. And I, I don't, I don't uh, care about the use of the word socialism. I probably wouldn't use it in a local congregation. What I would talk about uh, is the pooling of the common good for the sake of common well-being. Uh, and so the church has a big stake uh, in exposing uh, the, the uh, failure and the irresponsibility of extreme individualism. Right. And, and if I could put in a word for, I mean, a couple of theologians who often get pegged as more conservative, but who have very good things to say precisely on the economics of enclosure and the history of capitalism and whatnot. Um, you know, whatever else they say about a goodly number of other things, and I realize that they do, writers like John Milbank and William T. Cavanaugh coming from a, you know, Roman Catholic and a Church of England context, respectively, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the big critiques they have is precisely for multinational capitalism. And one of their big complaints uh, is that precisely that it gets ideological. Uh, people treat it as natural or given when, in fact, I mean, without very much historical reading at all, you can find, okay, this is when it started. This is when the enclosure laws happened. This is when the commons stopped being common. 
and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that this is one of those places where, you know, uh, you know, if, uh, I, I think that you are right to praise Jim Wallace as having uh, drawn the good things from his evangelical faith and from a from a left politics. And I think that, you know, in their own ways, Milbank and uh, Kavanaugh are doing similar things. Well, I quite agree. I, th- I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I find Milbank uh, not very easy to penetrate. But oh, he doesn't read. He doesn't write easy books, to be sure. Right. <laughs> Whereas, no, he he actually came on the show several years ago, and I I straightforward asked him about that, and he said, "Well, uh, the reason I can do that is because there's people like you who can interpret it to those who don't who won't read them." <laughs> yeah, right. I said, "That's that's not a very good excuse for this impenetrable writing, but that's that's, right. <laughs> that, that's neither here nor there." Whereas Jim Wallace is so uh, immediately accessible. He is absolutely, and and William T. Cavanaugh. I don't know if you've had much chance to read I him. Do. He's he he kind of runs down the middle. I, I I've enjoyed his books a great deal. I actually use his book, uh, Migrations of the Holy, when I teach uh, the World Religions class here at Emmanuel College, yeah. just to give my students an idea that there haven't. I mean, just like capitalism, and you know the the historical developments developments run side by side. There haven't always been religions in the plural. That's right. Exactly. Well, anyway, Walter, I want to take a sidestep from Elijah for a moment and ask a question about this collection's big picture and honestly about some Old Testament theology more broadly. I have read you and I've read other theologians working with biblical texts take a stand for the small pre-monarchical landholders in one moment. And on another page, they take a stand against the Joshua narratives, which seem to be logically prior to the Israelite smallholders as inherently genocidal. I can't seem to solve this puzzle. So, you know, why can't I get these to fit together? Or, I mean, should I use a different metaphor than a puzzle when I read the uh, Joshua context of the the Joshua conquest and the uh, small landholders of judges next to each other? Well, I don't know the answer to that either. I, I don't. I, I was don't, hoping I'd get some answers today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know that that uh, the uh, economy of the small landowner uh, invariably must lead to violence, as it did in the Book of Joshua. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't think we can duck the reality uh, that the uh, biblical witness. So the land of promise eventuates in uh, genocide as much as they could practice genocide. Uh, So there that is. And I suppose uh, we might take it as a a cautionary tale that that whatever we want to do about a common economy uh, cannot be an economy that culminates in genocide uh, or other forms of violence. Uh, So I don't know how to fit that together, uh, but certainly the the reality of violence has to be taken with great seriousness in our interpretation. Yes, indeed. And it got me thinking about a text from the Gospel of Luke that uh, my preacher preached not long ago at uh, Bogart Christian Church, Little Disciples of Christ Church, where I worship. Um, And that is the parable where Jesus commends the 
dishonest servant for making friends with his dishonestly gotten wealth. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, I mean, that that doesn't solve any ethical problems, but it does kind of name what's going on when we praise, you know, the small landholders and also recognize that they didn't become small landholders until after Joshua. That's right. Exactly so. <laughs> I, I really hate when the Bible leads me to those, uh, those kind of moral relativist places, but uh, this seems to be one of those moments. It, le- it leaves us with a lot of work to do. Yes, indeed. That's a good way yep. to put it. Yep. Yep. Well, well, in chapter 17, Not Numbed Inside, you engage with the work of John Compton, who I hadn't heard of before, and I look forward to looking into him later who claims that the decline of the mainline churches uh, and, you know, the mainline Protestant churches, I should have said, is not that they have become increasingly liberal, but that the society surrounding them has declined in any sense that neighbors matter. Um, So you connected this to Isaiah's mockery of idols. And uh, I just want our listeners to hear how you make that connection. Well, I, I don't remember exactly that discussion. Uh, That's all right. That's all right. Let, let me give you a brief summary and then you can riff on it. I mean, right. the, the place that you go with it is that, you know, the uh, slogans, and it, it comes back to slogans often in this book, uh, that tell us that, you know, uh, the individual is responsible for our own good and so on and so forth. They turn into ideologies and ideologies are idols. And idols don't have any heart. They don't have any innards is the phrase that you use. And, uh, you know, in that respect, you know, Isaiah is, you know, pointing us to the fact that uh, these idols can't carry us. We have to carry them. Go from there. I got it. (laughs) Well, I think, I think uh, when, when we, when we absolutize uh, individualism, which I think is, is the the subject, uh, we create an ideology uh, that has no life-giving energy. Uh, so it is uh, the, the, the ideology or the idolatry of individualism wants to talk us out of uh, community, neighbor, commonality. And I do believe that individualism is one of the great idolatries uh, of our market economy. Uh, and we have to... Uh, we have to bear witness uh, to the fact that we cannot get along without neighbors. I think that has become uh, even more clear uh, through the COVID epidemic, uh, that neighborliness has become a a non-negotiable resource uh, for making it in this kind of society. Uh, And so we have to uh, you know, there, there is a, as you know, there's a standard catalog of idols, I think, that goes back to Bacon. Uh, but we can, we can gerrymander that list of idols in a variety of ways. Uh, idolatry happens whenever we absolutize something that doesn't warrant uh, that much uh, uh, support or endorsement. Right. Let's go ahead and go to Francis Bacon, because, you know, this is uh, one, I, I was surprised that this is how the book ended. Uh, and we're going to backtrack and talk about a couple other things. But your final chapter uh, reminded me why I hold you up as one who taught me to read. You note well that the Bible stands ready to praise wisdom and also the Bible stands ready to hold wisdom in suspicion. 
and nobody's crossing their fingers when they say either one of those. So in the contest that you imagined between St. Paul and Francis Bacon, uh, why is it that we cannot land on a stable meaning for wisdom? Well, I think on the one hand, it is because um, the, the inscrutable holiness of God keeps disrupting all of our certitudes. Uh, and on the other hand, the concrete pain of the human community also keeps uh, disrupting our certitudes. So you get the disruption from on high and you get it from below. Uh, and wisdom always wants uh, to arrive at some reliable claim that will stand up in a variety of different contexts. But what the best wisdom teachers knew in the ancient world is that every wisdom certitude is subject to revision when you get more data. Uh, and uh, the, the data keeps arising from the lived reality of our common life. So we're always having to adjust. And, and I suppose that that, that that is the crisis of every generation that my parents had certain certitudes that they taught me that other experience now shows that isn't right. And my children and my grandchildren are also revising the certitudes that I thought were settled. Uh, and that's what it means to be alive. Right, right. And I mean, that's also, I mean, just at the core of the book of Job, which is one of those books that I enjoy so much teaching to college students because uh, it is Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad who keep saying what you should say about God. And then Job keeps saying, no, I mean, what you've been saying about God is utter nonsense. And here's a poem about why it's nonsense. That's right. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I've taught Job to college students somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 times. So I, uh, I've come to love that book greatly. And I, I, I tell my students it might be the greatest atheist book ever written, and it's right in the middle of your Bible. That's right. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Well, Walter, I, I guess we're going to finish here with the with the essay on becoming a statistic. And in that one, you revisit the census that David takes in Second Samuel and in Chronicles, and you note the anger that numbering the people provokes in Yahweh and in the implicit echoes of. Caesar's census that summons Joseph to Bethlehem. I guess it's a good chapter to end on during Advent. Yeah. Now, here's my question. I mean, what ways of life can the faithful take on in the face of nation states and corporations that seem to enjoy nothing more than counting poll results and counting clicks and counting dollars and basically everything that you could possibly do to make people into statistics? How must we live otherwise? Well, uh, in, in, in most elementally, we must live otherwise that when we gather in community, uh, we, we do not traffic in statistics, but we traffic in specific narratives about need and possibility. And uh, as soon as we try to kick that up to scale with statistics, 
we lose the specificity of the narrative. And therefore the church has to be a storytelling community that focuses upon the immediacy and the specificity of human possibility and human predicament. And just to point to one more voice that often gets uh, championed by conservatives, but has similar things to say that, that you know, to this chapter, um, one of the points that I remember best from uh, Jacques Barzun's book, uh, From Dawn to Decadence, uh, is that, you know, with the rise of mathematically rooted science, the human temptation just explodes to abstract things, to reduce things to numbers. Uh, and, you know, when I was reading his book, uh, I had in mind that I was reading, you know, the the book that my conservative friends keep re- recommending to me. So I, I never thought of connecting it to Walter Brueggemann, but now I said, okay, I, I should have been thinking in that direction. <laughs> well, Walter, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about grief, hope, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, I think it's important that we, uh, women and men of faith, uh, keep our eye and our energy and our life fixed on the immediacy of human need and human possibility and not be distracted from it by a statistic or slogan or ideology of the right or of the left. Uh, And uh, I noticed that in the local congregation where I worship, the people who make a difference are the people who who invest concretely and vigorously in real human transactions. Walter Brueggemann, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And thanks for what you do. Yes, indeed. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Resisting Denial, Refusing Despair from Cascade Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.